Okay, uh, welcome everybody uh, to the Springs in the Desert podcast. We're so excited to be here with you today. Um, Anne Koshut and I are here today and we're going to be talking with a new member of our team, Cassandra Taylor. And you may have heard her name before. She has written a couple pieces on our blog and she just has a really compelling, beautiful and powerful story. So we're going to be weaving that into a discussion today on really how um, we all bring in expectations, particularly into marriage as, you know, Catholic women, um, Christian women, we may have certain ideas, um, some of them good and helpful and true, and some of them maybe less helpful. And through the experience of infertility and other unexpected things that happen, um, these expectations sometimes aren't met. So we're going to dive into what that looks like in the context of Cassandra's story, especially, and just relating that to the experience of infertility. So we're so happy that you're here with us. And um, thank you for subscribing in advance to our podcast. Please share it with your friends, check us out on social media. And at the end, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about some things we have coming up. Um, I am going to turn it over to Anne now, who's going to open us with a prayer, and then we'll get our conversation going. Yeah, we're really excited about um, starting off our new year with such a wonderful guest and um, a new member of our team. And so we thought that we would um, start this first episode of the new year with a prayer. And so we'd like to pray the Hail Mary. Um, Speaking of expectations, there was Mary expecting her life to take one particular path. Um, And of course, the Lord intervening and taking her on a different path Um, and a joyful one, but not one that was easy or without sorrow. So she's, I think, a beautiful model for us. And maybe um, as we pray together and, and as those listening to us pray along with us, we can just imagine ourselves taking Mary's hand and asking her to hold us, hold our hands as we walk on whatever path the Lord has us on right now. So we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Cassandra, as we get into your story, I just wanted to start off and ask you specifically about kind of the early part of your meeting your husband, because I just thought that was so (laughs) awesome and beautiful. And I believe you all met online and you had a long distance, very long distance situation. (laughs) So tell us about that. Yes, we did. First off, thank you guys so much for having me on this podcast. And uh, yes, my husband, well, first off, just for some context, I had been living like super, like typical life, right? I, I'm from New Jersey. I was in New Jersey. I would never plan on leaving New Jersey. And, you know, I have always been a Catholic, but, you know, was not in college and afterward living in, a, in such a, a Christian way. But um, my husband, 
had gone to school and kind of had his own, he was always Catholic as well, but he had kind of had this moment where after coming back from an alternate alternative spring break trip to Peru, realized that the people in Peru had nothing and were happy. And he had this kind of moment where it was like, what am I doing? So he ends up graduating from college, goes to Peru, is like basically a consecrated layman in this religious order. Then they sent him to Chile. Then they sent him to Rome. And then he discerned out of this order after like seven or eight years. And, um, you know, partially because he, he felt called to be a father. And I mean, he was open to the priesthood and at least as a consecrated layman, obviously, you're, you're not going to get married. And um, so he discerned out of this order, ended up in Spain doing this master's degree. And at that point, our lives kind of converged because I had been dating like a bunch of guys at the Jersey Shore. I was like, you know, what am I doing? <laughs> and I, there was one night where I was like, I'm just going to take the winter off. I'm not going to date anyone. I'm going to live in my parents' house, and, like bake bread or whatever. I never learned how to bake bread. And like the next day I signed up for a Catholic match for one month. I was like, I'll try it. I paid $30. And then two weeks later, Mike messaged me on Catholic match and we were kind of like off to the races, <laughs> but, um, Best $30 you'd ever spent. I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And it's weird because I did feel like I knew like when I was looking at like his profile and he had a picture of him like with the Pope or whatever. I was like, this guy is the one. (laughs) But, um, and it was actually kind of meeting him that made me take my faith more seriously as well. And um, so we dated long distance and just the way it was, I mean, things, we're either, I mean, my husband has said it, he's like, we're either going to, you know, get, you know, be engaged or, or, or we're not, you know, so less than a year later, we were married. I know that's not how things are supposed to go, but we weren't messing around. And I wasn't about to move to Spain to what, you know, live in another apartment. So we got married and had a lot of issues, had a lot of visa issues or back and forth. And, um, I, I found that such a compelling part of your story. The mm-hmm. I didn't, I, when I was rereading your blog post, realizing that y'all were physically separated from each other in your first year of marriage. Like, I don't think many people go through that and um, certainly not something anyone expects. So I just found that to be very like yeah. sh- shine of strength, you know, to even be able to do that. Well, we Shows- were separated. Yeah, we were separated from most of our engagement and most of our dating. I think the first year of marriage, we were together most of the time, but we were not able to really kind of establish our marriage in a, in a place. You know what I mean? Like we didn't like kind of move into the home and set up the home together it was very kind of you know we had a few months to ourselves in Spain and then we were living in his parents house and I'm not complaining but it's just not the way that it normally happens Uh, so right away some unmet expectations about like or maybe your vision for what married life was like as you were growing up I imagine probably not didn't look like that (laughs) no not at all (laughs) yeah that's Yeah. And then, you know, we got our visa situation sorted out. We thought we were 
good to go. And also, you know, during this time, I, I have an identical twin sister and she had twins during this time. So, and we just kind of figured that, I mean, our life was crazy and that it just, pregnancy just wasn't happening. I mean, uh, you don't have to be like a gynecologist to know that if you're like moving all around in a stressful situation, then maybe it's just not gonna, gonna happen. But after my niece and nephew were born, I feel like we were both like kind of more like, okay, like when's it gonna happen for us? <laughs> and um, then we realized that my stomach was just like out. And anyway, long story short, I ended up going to the doctor and it was an ovarian cyst. And this doctor scared the crap out of us and was like, in this really kind of like cold way, like they're probably going to want to take everything out. And we were like, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like the other day it was fine. Was this in Spain or were you, yeah. this was in Spain? Yeah, it was. And um, which is we, like unsettling also because, you know, I mean, there you are together, you're, you're sort of starting a life f- figuring you're going to be in Spain, if not permanently, at least, you know, mm-hmm. for, for a good amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and now like, you know, you're trying to get settled and thinking you're like maybe getting some stability and then yeah. like this just kind of throws everything off. Yeah, we were obviously really blindsided by it because I didn't really have any other symptoms and I didn't have weird periods or or whatever. You know, I had had painful periods when I was like a teenager and, you know, a young adult and, you know, they had gotten better, but I had endometriosis that I didn't know I had at all. And, you know, looking back, I'm like, well, yeah, I had really you know, painful periods. And, you know, you could tell your doctors these things and it's like, but, you know, it's like 10 years too late or whatever. Well, and also just, I mean, because people think that's just normal. Like Mm -hmm. I grew up, I mean, and I I mean, I didn't have, you know, I I knew friends who just like got so sick every month and, you know, so I wasn't like that, but I would have months where, you know, I just had terrible cramps and, you know, couldn't go to class or whatever. Um, but that, but that's just sort of shrugged off even by your doctor. Like that's just shrugged off as like, well, that's, you know, that's what happens. Right. Yeah. And how are you supposed to know really if your pain is different or it's not normal? I mean, yeah. Very subjective. It's hard to, I think it's like something like 10 years is the average diagnosis time for endometriosis uh-huh. like rarely are people even diagnosed as teenagers even though they might be dealing with it yeah so it's like it's um not even on a lot of doctors radars and I think now just coming to more um awareness of it through things like napro technology and and that sort mm-hmm. of thing so mm-hmm. yeah right, off our off of our soapboxes no <laughs> Well, that was the other thing is I wonder, obviously, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I just wonder if I had kept charting because I was charting. We took like the the NFP class during pre-cane or whatever, during our three month engagement, we managed to take the class. And so I had been charting and then we were married for like three days and I was just like, like, 
whatever if when they let them come you know but I you know and I wonder if I'd kept up if I had if I would have seen something but obviously hindsight's 2020 but anyway we ended up leaving Spain we didn't really want to stick around to see what what they were going to have to say um because it was just too it was just we were just totally out of our context Mm -hmm. and without you know our family and I was just you know my we had that horrible doctor's appointment and you know we went home after we stopped in the church which I also wrote about and I got in bed and my husband and my mother-in-law just decided that we were going home and they got our plane tickets and we were here for nine months I had two surgeries and chemotherapy and you know then we went home but yeah we're totally blindsided especially because I didn't have, like I was saying, I didn't really have other symptoms. I only had this bloating, which ended up being like a massive cyst, but like every, you know, the odds were not, I was 29, you know, it it was just a really weird, it was not supposed to be cancer, you know, by any like kind of statistical, but anyway, I mean, it is what it is. So you get that news and it's really, it just like upends everything. And I mean, there was a good decision that they put you on that plane and you came Mm -hmm. back to the States. So, um, what, what happened then you got here and obviously you said, you know, they discovered cysts, endo, Mm -hmm. but what was the, the kind of really big news that you received once you got here? So, I ended up at, at Yale with this really, you know, funny doctor and he came, comes in and it, it was me, my mom and, and my husband in the room. And we were kind of, we were like in a good mood because I, I mean, I thought it was just an ovarian cyst and I guess I'd have to have surgery and it was scary, but especially the larger cysts aren't usually cancer. They're usually just benign. But um, so I was trying to you know, meeting this doctor for the first time. And I just mentioned that we wanted to be parents and I love my doctor. I'm never saying anything bad about him, but he was just like, Oh, well, you can always get a surrogate, you know? And I just like wow. laughed it off. Cause we we're, you know, weren't planning on walking out of there anytime soon without my uterus, but you know, it's just kind of in the medical world that, you know, we have these options. Right. Um, but anyway, um, so I had a, the first surgery to remove the cyst. It was supposed to take two hours and my husband's sitting there waiting and ended up taking like six hours and he keeps getting these text updates. Like everything is progressing as normal. Like everything is progressing as normal. And it was like six hours. And I was in, you know, after I woke up, I was in um, the bed and cause the doctor in the first meeting, he was like 80% chance it's not cancer. Mm-hmm. And then obviously after he had kind of seen the inside of my body he came in, it was like kind of a totally different demeanor. And um, wow. he was like the, the, cause they run lab tests while you're in mm-hmm. um, the surgery, like while you're still out to see what it is. And it had come back as borderline, which is kind of like not cancer, but not nothing either. Um, so that's what it had come back. So he left one of my ovaries and my uterus in during the first surgery and he came back and he was like, you know, we'll see what the, like the, the more involved lab tests tell us, but, um, you know, everything was like sticking together in there. Like, 
so he saw the endometriosis and um, he told me um, to talk to my pastor basically about freezing my eggs. What? I, what? Wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he knew, I mean, he, I, we had expressed, I guess, to him that we were not going to do any of these advanced technologies. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, with good intentions, he, I mean, he just sees like, that we want to be parents and sees that I'm 29 years old and in his hospital chair. And, um, you know, just trying to, to help meet that need. I was saying that maybe we would have time to do some cycles to freeze my eggs like before he was like maybe you'll have time to have one or you know have like a kid or to freeze your eggs or but he told me to talk to my pastor Mm. (laughs) and you know it's like well for what (laughs) yeah it's it's so tough when you you realize like you're kind of describing this moment where it's like the secular culture and kind of the way they do things with efficiency. And, you know, here's your, like you said, here's the steps you could take comes right to like directly against, you know, what we are taught in our faith. And like in that moment, you just see, yeah, like this is, (laughs) yeah, this is so different. Um, gosh. But Cassandra, let, I mean, let me ask you, like, was there a moment or even a split second where it kind of passed through your mind and you were like, well, or it just never, ever did? No, no, it didn't. I mean, I, I don't know if this is like to my credit or not, but I can be a kind of like a rule follower when it comes to the faith. Um, So, I mean, we just weren't even going to consider it. And and, I mean, after, I mean, we don't have no formation. I mean, I, I, my husband especially has a lot of, you know, formation in the faith and, and, you know, we understand why those things aren't an option. And we understand um, that we can't put the goal of obtaining the child, like, we're not going to do to sacrifice, like, your spiritual health to obtain I mean because I do think it's possible to kind of idolize getting the child you know yeah, definitely yeah definitely um so after my first surgery we were kind of in this waiting period because my doctor had kind of said maybe we can leave everything in there and like put you into menopause artificially and see <laughs> if we can kind of get away with it um, so that it doesn't keep growing because my cancer was a hormone base. So he figured putting me into menopause, maybe the cancer wouldn't keep growing. And then I could have kids like a couple years down the road. And he was like, get a second opinion. So I ended up going into Boston to get a second opinion. And we basically just wanted this doctor to be straight with us. You know, I don't, you know, just tell me the truth, you know, And he was like, that is not an option for you. And he, I mean, he, the second doctor at Dana-Farber also recommended that I have like radiation, which I didn't end up having. having. And my doctor down here was like, oh, I thought like 
He's saying he wants to be like aggressive. I didn't think he was gonna. So it basically wasn't an option. But this doctor too, I, it was like, especially because you're not open to reproductive, like advanced technologies. And it's just like, you know, like I don't have to defend myself to you either, you know? And he wasn't, I mean, nothing negative from any of these guys. They just want to make you happy when they're giving you the bad news but it kind of yeah. puts you in this position where it's like I'm not gonna have like a 10 minute like theology of the body course with you here in your <laughs> office while right. I'm like on the exam table you know um yeah so that's when we you know went back to Connecticut scheduled my hysterectomy and um I don't know that I mean one of my favorite stories ever was what happened because we left I mean we walked out of my doctor's office after I had like signed the paper where you're like I understand that I'm not gonna be able to have children you know and I was basically about to have like a total emotional breakdown outside of the hospital like I didn't even make it to the car and the way my hospital was set up there was kind of like this roundabout and I just started sobbing into my husband's shoulder um outside of the doctor's office we didn't even make it to the car but I hear someone like hello like hello and I was like who is talking to me right now (laughs) and I was like you know yes or whatever (laughs) and um it was this you know older man who started to kind of explain like oh I saw you here and I just I'm a chaplain at one of the other hospitals and I just wanted to like come and he had a prayer card with Mary in front of the American flag like one of those like unite us in prayer and he gave it to me and like once I realized he was Catholic because he explained to me that he was a deacon Mm -hmm. and I was like I mean God sent him to me I like he wasn't an angel actually, but in like the same way, he just happened to be there picking up his daughter and he came up to us and was explaining and I ended up telling him everything. Cause I was like, um, like I'm really having trouble with this and I don't want to like sterilize myself. And, but he explained about like the teachings of the church and how I have to, and I explained that we wanted to be parents. And he he told me that his wife, I guess, also had to have um, a hysterectomy or something for medical reasons. And she had had five kids. And she said that he said that they would have taken five more and that she cried, you know, when she lost hers. And I mean, we walked away smiling from that. And wow. there there's just several times, like several different ways that God, I feel like, clearly manifested himself to us through this whole thing like through our friends and family and through my deacon and just in other ways it's really um beautiful I love that because um I think that's so true and Allie you can probably relate to this I think probably a lot of our our listeners can that um, the Lord does send those people or something that we read or maybe even a song or a movie that there's something there that touches us and gives us that comfort. Um, but at the same time, we're not just sort of saying like, oh, the Lord will send you this message and then everything will be fine. Like there are like we still have our days where it is difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like 
the Lord doesn't promise that it will be easy. And we're not promising anybody that it will be easy. But um, I always would say this whenever I would do marriage prep, I would tell the couples that um, the sacrament does not make marriage easy. It makes it possible. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the Lord does send us you know, these, these little messages or people into our lives that make it possible for us to, you know, just sort of keep, keep going and finding the good and finding the fruitfulness and finding the smile, like the fact that you said that, you know, you walked away from that encounter smiling, I'm sure you cried again later, Mm -hmm. but like, what a miracle that yeah. after just receiving all of that news and, you know, that you were able to smile, I mean, what a gift. And those are like the gifts I think that, well, I won't speak for you, but for me, I take those for granted all the time. Yeah. You know? We have to be open to recognizing them, you know? Yeah. I, I want to go back to something else you said about, um, throwing away your, um, your chart, <laughs> your chart yeah. like, before any of this happened. And, and um, just like that joy and that feeling, or I, I guess just abandonment in some sense to like what God would provide to you, because I think so many people, regardless of your situation, whether you receive really difficult news about your fertility, like suddenly, or whether it happened through time, or whether it is just like this monthly thing that you're still struggling with and, and holding out hope for. Like, I think that we can all relate to that feeling of like, yes, Lord, like, yes, I want this beautiful family. Like, yes, the Catholic church has like taught us how beautiful and good this desire is. Um, and just to like, just to wrestle with that, um, having to see that go unfulfilled. So bringing it back mm-hmm. to like these unmet expectations Um, I think one thing that's important is to like separate out that like, no matter what, even if we are never blessed with children, like that, that is still a good desire, like that the Lord is pleased with us, I think, for trusting him and like through your husband's discernment that, that, you know, he discerned that like, this is something on his heart, like that's still good. And um, I think a lot of people struggle with, um, like, oh, maybe I made the wrong decision. Like I I didn't discern correctly. I didn't hear the Lord. He wasn't really asking me this, um, whether it's, you know, just your marriage in general or being a father and mother. And so I just wondered um, if in your experience, if you've been able to like kind of separate that out and, and, and still see um, this desire for a family, however, God may provide it in your life, like as a good in your, in your marriage. Yeah, it's well, it's been kind of interesting for us. I mean, I still, I don't know. I know that we all feel that we're still like in the trenches, you know what I mean? About our life. I don't know. It's, we definitely, you know, want to be parents. And I feel like a lot of the plans that I had at least kind of just expectations, I've now kind of transferred over to like my hopes of fostering or adopting or whatever and sometimes I realize like with my cancer now I'm in you know remission or whatever I and that's not something I I think about every day but sometimes if I 
and like bloated or whatever. And it's like, I could still die from this, you know? And then it's like, but I had all these plans and it's kind of, I've, I feel like I've kind of just transferred everything over to like these other hopes. And, um, I, I just think it's important that we can all pray like, God, like, please send me my children today. You know, they're all people. If we die tomorrow, you know, we can still be life-giving today. And we just have to, to recognize it's like, well, maybe I don't always want to be life-giving to my husband. I mean, I'm not good at that. <laughs> or my, my in-laws who need my help with something or, and it's not always the people we, we can't always say like, Lord, please give me the children that I want to be life-giving to today. Just like, just like when we say like, Lord, my life is yours, that we can't be surprised when he does something with it that maybe we didn't, you know, expect or, or feel like we wanted, you know? Yeah. I think so many of us, like, I, I definitely, I, going to convict myself. It's like, I was willing to be like, oh yeah, Lord, like send me as many children as you want, you know, like that type of abandonment. But like, Uh that's just one of like many different types. And perhaps for me personally, that would have been easier Uh or I perceive that than like what I've actually been given, you know? And, but, (laughs) but anyway, he's always like drawing us deeper, I think, into, into these, these things. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to go back to um, what you were saying about the doctors um, kind of talking to you about these other like artificial reproductive technologies that you could do or um, using a surrogate or something like that. And um, how you rightly pointed out, I mean, they have good intentions, right? Because they see a 29 year old woman you know, who really desires to have a family. And um, so they, you know, they want to help you fulfill that, right? Um, And, you know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, some of the reasons why, um, why we wouldn't choose to go in that direction, how it's not just all about our desire that we have to really think about the giftedness of the child and not idolize them. Um, and, and the respect that we have for our own bodies, for the body of our spouse, for the integrity of, of our sexual relationship with each other and, and all of that. But as you were speaking about that, I was thinking about the flip side. And again, in my experience, and I don't know how you all have experienced this, um, you know, doing NFP or learning Creighton or, you know, um, looking into these other, you know, licit ways of, of helping to heal our bodies and, and, you know, to try to get pregnant. And um, I, in my experience, I have found that oftentimes that desire is not addressed, or maybe it's addressed in some sense, the same way that you are saying the doctor addressed your desire by saying, let's do artificial, you know, kind of technologies. Like sometimes for me, I felt like, um, you know, my doctor, my fertility care provider was like so goal oriented because they saw that desire in me and they wanted to, um, albeit by licit and moral means, they wanted to help me to achieve it. And so, 
I don't know. I'm wondering if there's like, I don't know, a new way that we can begin to look at and talk about that desire. Like desire in itself is not a bad thing or it doesn't have to be. Um, it's, it's good. And so how can we look at that desire for a child as something that is still good, even if it is going unfulfilled? I mean, Sandra, I think you were just sort of touching on that a little bit in when you're saying about sort of transfer, maybe not, maybe even transfer is not the word, but like expanding, Mm -hmm you know, the meaning of that desire or the understanding of that desire in some sense. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I remember before we left Spain and I was kind of, cause losing my uterus and not being able to have kids was still at that point, the worst case scenario. And we were having dinner uh, with our really close friends who are over there. They've since moved away, but it was a, a, a woman from New Jersey and a Canadian man who were also in Granada and we were really close with them. And because he's Canadian, he said it in like a weird way, but he said, uh, your desire for motherhood will not be scuttled. I think that's what he said. I forget the exact word. It was so weird. But um, because it's, it is a good thing, you know, and I think the question of how we realize that is really the point of your entire ministry, because it's not about um, like teaching people how to get pregnant. I mean, it's about how, cause not every story is going to end that way. Um, so what do we do with it? You know, and that's going to be different for every person, but of course it is good. I, I think, who was it? Edith Stein or maybe said that like every woman is a mother, you know, and, and that's true of, of all three of us and of, of every woman right now. Um, so how do, how do we appreciate that? I mean, these are like the, the deeper, but of course it's good, you know, and to, to kind of deny it because it hurts and because it's not the way we wanted to be mothers is, um, is not the way. Yeah. That's so good. I think, yeah, there's like this universality based on our being female. And I think this is one of the things that I get so frustrated by, like in our culture, the way you describe this, Cassandra, about this like cult of pregnancy and parenthood. And it makes it almost, I think, seem like an exclusive club that like, oh, you know, if you finally get everything that you want, your life will look like this. Yeah. And it's like, I think part of the problem is because on the one hand, like our culture has like rejected this idea of fertility and motherhood. But on the other hand, I think they're obsessed with it, right? (laughs) Like making it into this um, kind of dreamy sort Mm -hmm. of perfect way of being. And so we're kind of in these both in both of these worlds. But by doing that, I think we've rejected the fact that like everyone has this within them, like this desire innately is a part of like being a woman or for a man, like being a man. And so I think we need to like bring that back. And um, by doing that, and for me, like infertility has helped me see in other women who are not physical mothers. And even those who are like a motherhood that goes beyond like biology, you know, like Mm -hmm. my elderly friend who's single and like 
wants to invite me over for dinner and like bring it all her nice china out like that to me like I would never would have been able to see that in the same way I think had I not had this experience and like appreciate that this is a part of her motherhood mm-hmm. so um I don't know I think that's something yeah we need to like get this message <laughs> get this message out there so that all women even those not struggling with infertility but those who are maybe single or um you know just feel like they've missed that opportunity that they're still included in this, um, in this call for motherhood. It's a really good point. Yeah. And that it's not the child that makes the marriage a family. And I mean, there's a whole lot of like societal and cultural kind of boundaries about things, things we don't talk about, but it leads you to believe that every pregnancy is going to end in going home with a baby and that every marriage is, is going to end in the exact family that you wanted. Um, and if it doesn't, then you're not going to talk about it. Um, and obviously that's kind of like the, (laughs) the boundaries we have to break or push according to our own, our own capabilities and situation and, and comfort. But I mean, it is important that we are able to have these conversations with each other and then in this way help other men and women and couples know that they're not alone. Yeah, more and more, and I'd, I'd like both of your thoughts on this, more and more, I'm starting to feel as if um, we, in our situations, whether we are struggling with infertility, whether, you know, that window is closed for us. If, you know, there's people who, who are part of our community and listening who have a child or two children and want more and can't conceive, um, you know, women who have lost a child. And so um, I'm just, I, I think a lot about like what our responsibility is in helping to create this sort of culture of, um, you know, more acceptance and inclusiveness. So what I mean is, you know, we'll talk a lot of times about, um, and we've all received these comments, like the rude comments, or people don't think they're being rude, but like, oh, aren't you pregnant yet? You know, and like, I think so many times they don't realize like what a dagger that is to the heart because they don't know our situation. And so we talk a lot about, well, like, what do you say? And what are, you know, what are, what's the best answer to that? Which I think, I mean, is a good thing. I think we should talk about that, you know, but, um, but I wonder too, how much we have a responsibility to try to educate and, and help other people to become aware of, you know, what it is like to carry this burden. And, you know, maybe that is just in, talking to our families, being honest with our friends, you know, friends who seem to get pregnant, you know, so easily. I have a good friend who has two children and um, she, she and I have just been able to maintain this close relationship because she's very open with me about her struggles with motherhood. Um, And she knows, and I've been open with her about my struggles with infertility. And so I feel like in a way we meet on, on a level plane. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I just wonder what you all think about that. Like, how can we, as the people who are struggling with infertility and with, with these desires, like, how can we 
I guess in a way be, be generous, <laughs> more generous to those around us and, and, you know, inviting that kind of acceptance. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. I agree. I think it starts with being willing to be honest and vulnerable. And we talk a lot about like how to respond when someone asks you the question, like how many kids do you have or, or whatever it is. And more and more I'm finding courage to just be honest with it to some degree, right. Depending on the person. I, mm-hmm. but I, I, I don't usually say, Oh, you know, we just don't have any because I don't want to leave that question open as to like, whether we desire to have any, I want it to be clear that we do. And I think it, it allows like a certain vulnerability and the admission is that like life doesn't always go the way that you hoped and planned. And I think everyone can relate to that. (laughs) Um, Like my older sister, she has five children and I've found that like you're describing Anne with your friend, it's like, we have this honesty, like she was completely exhausted and had a meltdown the other day because she had gotten like four hours of sleep and, you know, and her sharing things like that with me helps me to be more open too. And it's like this, you know, it's um, symbiotic in that we can grow in intimacy by sharing these things and um, helping others feel like they're not alone. Like you were saying, Cassandra. So I think that's, that's a huge point, just being willing to first of all not assume the worst in the other person just for them asking mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like to have charity with them um they don't mean necessarily to hurt us by asking these questions about our children or things like that but I think that um, we can go a long way just by just by being more honest yeah definitely I, I remember once I was in a, a with my sister's friends a group of of Catholic kids that I was just meeting like basically for the first time most of them and um, this one girl, like sweetest girl you'll ever meet was like, do you guys have any kids? Mm-hmm. And, um, and oh, sorry. And, um, and I was like, no, no. And, and she's like, soon. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, actually, I can't because of this, this and this. And, you know, it became like, this is an awful phrase almost like a teaching a teaching moment you know what I mean and that was that was the right situation for that and I feel like with other people like if someone and like when you're going into church is like bombarding you with like I don't know when this happens someone you don't explain it's just like well when God wants you know and but um I do think honesty and openness to the amount that we're all comfortable is so important when people are asking us the question. And I do think people ask the question just because they, you know, maybe they do just want to know, they want to know about you. And um, I think it's probably also possible that people ask that, that have maybe had problems themselves. Obviously that's not going to be in every, but you know, if you have a problem and you are going to, I don't know if maybe you have a feeling that someone else is going through the same thing maybe you will ask the question that you wouldn't have liked to have been on the receiving end of, but yeah, just to, as to what you're saying with your sister, I feel like a lot, a big part of like being relate to others, being able to relate to others is um just recognizing their suffering and, you know, they can recognize your suffering. And that was really the point of the second blog post I wrote because I mean, my sister with her twin babies, 
suffers a lot mm-hmm. and it's not like if I was like you have kids and I'm suffering because I don't and you are therefore not allowed to talk to me about your suffering I mean is one way to kill a relationship you know yeah. really quickly so I, it's just about empathy like for us to recognize that in the mothers that we see even the mothers you know the mothers who are struggling because they have children, the mothers who are struggling because they don't have as many children as they would like to receive from the Lord. And then the mothers who do not have any children yet. <laughs> um, just that everyone is allowed uh, to suffer, you know? Yeah. Okay. There's another topic I wanted to bring back with the, um, uh, these unmet expectations. Cassandra, in one of your posts, um, your blog posts, you said that but there were also the larger eternal things we had lost that went unsaid on that day, participating with God to create someone whose spirit would last forever, raising saints for the church, fulfilling what we believe to be our vocation. And this was resonated with me a lot. And I know it did with many others. We've spoken about this before on different podcast episodes about this eternal dimension to infertility and um, the idea that uh, we won't have children waiting for us in heaven or that there won't be this family that we've envisioned because we can't have, we can't become pregnant in heaven. That's not a part of it, but it is the fulfillment of our, you know, our, the beatific vision. So we will be with God. Um, so, and I think you had a really good question for Cassandra specifically on this, but I wanted to explore all of us, this idea of eternity and how we can have like a more, positive um, outlook on it in light of infertility Um, even if we never (laughs) receive a child like how can we look positively on the life that is to come Um, so just open it up for either of you to comment on that or maybe Anne, you have something else you wanted to add from your question no I mean I'll just add my own experience is that I I spent so much time kind of like living in the sadness and the anger and the frustration and the, like my prayer life and my prayer life, like my husband and I would pray together, but I really did feel like, well, it's on my shoulders. Like I, you know, I have to take it all on. Um, And so there was all like the bargaining and the negotiating with the Lord and, you know, all of that sort of thing. Um, And there was a point, and I'm not really even sure when it was, but I had sort of reached this point where I think everything just got so heavy on my shoulders that I was like, wait a minute, what, like, what am I doing? Um, Am I willing to carry all of this on my shoulders to be weighed down by jealousy and anger and grief and you know, a hundred other emotions, um, in exchange for my soul, not that, you know, not that I was making bargains with the devil to get a baby or something, but, but I was really just, um, I was really just so focused on myself and on the goal of achieving what I wanted, the goal of fulfilling that desire for a child that I was certainly, 
kind of putting my husband second, like he was very much in the background for, for a long period of time. And I wasn't thinking ahead to where all of our desires lead us. Like that desire, my desire for marriage, my desire for a child, my desire for anything that I have in this world, in this life, ultimately is like the, the step toward my desire for God, like everything in this life, you know, is just should be leading and preparing me for that eternity with him. And I think once I put it in that perspective, once I sort of got that perspective uh, straight in my mind, um, not going to say it became easier, but I was able to like pull myself back, you know, when I, when I found myself kind of, you know, going over the edge, um, you know, I was like, okay, but wait a minute, like, think about, you know, think about the good that you have here. Think about your marriage and all of the good things here and, and where all that is leading you. Like you want all of, you want to live a good life here so that you will have the greatest life eternally with God. Yeah, we can't forget where we're going, right? And that, that, I mean, we're not made for this. You know, this is not, this is not what we're meant for. I think that's probably pretty obvious to everyone. But I mean, at the same time, it's, it's not and we forget, you know, and we get, you know, kind of wrapped up in in our own stuff. I, I think it's probably only natural, but this is not what we're made for you know I mean since the fall um we're just all trying to get back to heaven and that's why I love that that quote everyone knows from St. Augustine um that our hearts are restless and until it finds its rest in thee and it's it's so true I mean we just have to keep our eyes on on the finish line when stuff feels like it's getting too hard because I also feel that suffering is probably a good sign you know, and it's, that's the beautiful part. One of the beautiful parts of, of being a Christian is that we have this understanding of, of suffering and its um, contribution, you know, to the divine economy. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. No, you're exactly right. And I think, and like, we don't have to overly spiritualize it. So I like, if anybody is listening and, you know, is sort of like, oh, but these women, like they're holy and praying, like, first of all, no, like, no, we're in it. We're in yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, we're in it, you know? And so like, so, you know, we don't have to have like a Pollyanna overly spiritualized vision of it because Jesus like forged the way for us, right? Like he sweat blood. Okay. Like he wasn't just like surrounded in this glow of a halo as he carried the cross effortlessly to Calvary. Like, no, he, you know, he said, father, can you make this cup pass from me? You know, he, I'm sure it wasn't a picnic having people like spit at him and say like, see, we knew, we knew that, you know, that you were just this kind of huckster and you weren't for real. Mm -hmm. um, so he forged that path for us. And not only did he forge it, but like he's walking 
with us. And I know that there are times and maybe there are a lot of times when it does not feel that way. Um, but I always turn back to Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, that um, it, it doesn't, she said once that it doesn't matter how you feel. I love this. It doesn't matter how you feel as long as Jesus feels good in you. And so, you know, she was a woman who for 40 years experienced this darkness and this, this lack of the tangible awareness of Jesus with her. But, but she sort of assures us that even if we don't feel it, Jesus is there. And that's not nothing, right? No, it's, she's like the holiest person you can think of just about, you know, after Jesus and St. Joseph and his mother. And it's like, who's holy? It's like, well, of course, it's Mother Teresa. But she had these dark times, you know, and didn't feel God's presence. So, I mean, <clears throat> maybe it doesn't matter how we feel so much. We just have to make sure that we're. But um, after, you know, after that first doctor's appointment, well, after I, I got the news that in Spain, that that awful doctor's appointment, and we walked home and we walked into the church um, right by our house, there was this priest there that I'd never seen before. It was July. So he was like Italian or something and had come to Spain to cover the priest's vacation. And I've never seen anything like this before or since, but we, you know, it was you know, the liturgy of the Eucharist and we kind of knelt in the back row because the mass was going on, obviously. And it came for the elevation and, you know, he held up the host and just stopped for like 30 seconds or like a minute with like no explanation. I've never seen anyone do this. You know, normally, you know, you're pretty like up and down and, you know, the mass keeps going on, but he just stopped. And, you know, I was just in the back row, like sobbing and just like, looking and then the same with the wine and then they break it and hold it up and it's like you know Jesus' body was broken yeah too I mean like you said he wasn't up there in this glow like okay like this is this is it I mean and I love this example of how in um in the prison block in Auschwitz, in one of the cells by the starvation, you know, by where Maximilian Kolbe was held, you know, trying to starve him to death with the other prisoners. In one of those other cells, there's carvings of the sacred heart mm. and of a crucifix. And it's like, that's the point of the crucifixion is not to take away the suffering, but right. to show us that God is there with us and is in it with us now. and. Right. and always and we're not alone that is a beautiful beautiful example I love that you brought that up I'm so glad you did because I feel like for me that just reading your story and hearing it again it's like the the idea or the vision of you two going to church together after what I imagine was probably like the most difficult moment you've probably dealt with or one of them yeah <laughs> um it's like it didn't fix everything. Right. But it's like, that's what we all do. Right. We have to just turn to God in that and, and just surrender to him. And I think that's also like to bring it back to these expectations that we've been talking about. Like the only answer really is to like surrender to God, everything. And it, we still might be confused. We still will hurt. We still will grieve. We'll still cry. 
and all the emotions will be there but like he is the only piece that we have when um when nothing else is making any sense and when our expectations are just like you know smashed to smithereens by the news we just got or um by life just not turning out the way that we had hoped so um thank you so much for for sharing that as we kind of wrap this up um I was wondering, do y'all have any final words or maybe we could end in a prayer? I just want to add, like when, when we went into the church, uh, we didn't, you know, I was like breaking down on the sidewalk outside the hospital. <laughs> you know, this is now, that's the first time I broke down on the sidewalk outside the hospital. And then the other time was the second time. There's been more than one time, but um, you know, we didn't, we weren't standing there like, let's go to church. That's what we should do now. Literally we were walking home and the door was open and, and we walked in, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's sometimes just what we have to do, you know? Yeah. 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 It's like, um, the Lord gives us these invitations, um, right. When we need them. I, I just think about, I mean, we get a lot of, um, we get a lot of messages and emails from, from people out there, couples who are really struggling. I mean, and for us, you know, the three of us here, I mean, infertility is a burden. It's a suffering. Um, so, you know, we understand that, but there are a lot of people out there who are really, really struggling and, and are just feeling so alone and, and so much like they don't understand what God, speaking of expectations, like what is God expecting of them, right? Like why, why is this happening? And I mean, we don't have the answers. I mean, if we did, we, you know, we'd be not here. We would be like marketing them someplace, <laughs> right? And making a lot of money, but yeah. um, but I mean, we don't, we, like we don't have the answers we don't have the magic answer, but I think, you know, the real, the authentic answer is found in relationship with our spouse, like knowing that we did not marry a series of expectations or um, an idea or an ideal about what marriage is. We married a person and that, um, that, that love for that person is good, that this marriage is good, and that even if this particular desire isn't fulfilled, it doesn't mean that we chose wrong, that we discerned wrong, that we're in the wrong place. It means maybe that we just have to um, adjust those expectations and, um, you know, sort of allow ourselves to be pointed in a new direction um, by the Lord. And that can be very scary because it's, it's a loss of control and coming from a control freak right here. I know that that's difficult and scary, but the suffering while we don't want it and it's not punishment and it's not the Lord saying, I think I'll make you suffer today. Um, because Jesus suffered first, that has become a means of growth and strength for us. And it can draw us so much closer to our spouse, so much closer to our family and friends, so much closer to the Lord. And so 
I guess I would just invite everyone listening and invite us and I'm inviting myself to, to like realign our expectations um, and to focus them on the Lord and to just ask the Lord, like just in this moment right now, Lord, what are you teaching me through this suffering? How are you strengthening me? How are you preparing me for the fruitfulness, the goodness, the thing that even might be so small and seem insignificant to me that could mean so much to someone else? How are you shaping and molding me to accomplish your work, to give you glory in in my marriage, in my relationships? and in this world. And I just want everyone who is listening to know that the Lord is molding you and shaping you and utilizing you and your story and your suffering and your love and your marriage to create something beautiful and wonderful, even if it doesn't meet the expectations that you have had. Um, for your life and for your marriage. Cassandra, would you like to have any final thoughts and then maybe close us in, in prayer? Um, uh, the, the only thought that's coming to me is something that one of my priests said to me once was that there are no children in the song of songs. So it's just something to think about, you know, our marriages are, are, are what they are, are meant to be you know, no matter what. So, yeah. um, okay. Amen. Amen. Glory be to the father, to the son and to the Holy spirit as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Cassandra, for joining us. And thank, thank you, you ladies. <laughs> thank you all for being with us. Um, Stay tuned. We're going to have more um, content coming up. Um, I don't think we've announced it yet, have we, Anne, about Lent, but stay tuned for a special offering that we'll be having this Lenten season um, where you'll be able to connect with uh, others who also struggle with infertility. And stay tuned. Subscribe to our podcast. Please rate and review it if possible so that we can reach um, more people. And definitely check out our social media channels on um, Instagram and on Facebook and check out our website as well for um, new blog posts that are going to be coming out, uh, rolling out in the coming weeks. We're going to be hearing from some new voices. So really excited about all this. And we're so glad that you're along with us on the journey.